0: Some characters and concepts have the legs to endure for centuries. Uh, Hercules and the Monkey King have been around since almost before recorded history, and they're going to be hanging around until human civilization collapses, which, based on what we can see, might be any day now. However, certain others tend to hang around, but have fallen from esteem. Just about everybody will have some vague sense of who Paul Bunyan is, at least in America, but nobody seems to really give a shit about him. Uh, One character who's fallen into this murky domain is Zorro, the black-clad Avenger of the Innocent. For this episode, I am going to focus on the 1920 film The Mark of Zorro, which put the character on the map, and I'm going to examine how important this film was to the history of action cinema, while also um, speculating upon why people don't seem to care about about Zoro that much. He's not Sherlock Holmes, he's closer to say, oh King Arthur. Where um everyone knows who King Arthur is, but it's hard to find a fan. Anyways, my name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Before we go into anything else, I'm going to go into the plot of this film. It's a 1920 silent film, so it's pretty simple. Central character is Don Diego Vega, the seemingly foppish son of a wealthy ranchero named Don Alejandro. He lives in uh, Alta, California in the uh, late 18th or early 19th century. It's often a little murky when exactly Soro operates, but it tends to be when California was still a Spanish colony. However, this seemingly foppish Vega is surprised surprise, surprise actually Zorro, a uh, sort of cross between the Scarlet Pimpernel and Robin Hood, who um, dresses in a black mask and cape and parades about Pueblo architecture uh, as a champion of the people, robbing from corrupt rich people and giving to the needy. His uh, main opposition in this film is the corrupt Governor Alvarado, but also his uh, henchman uh, Captain Juan Ramal and the brutish Sergeant Pedro Gonzalez. The uh, subplot to this uh, involves uh, Vega half heartedly courting the beautiful Lolita Polito, often with uh, limp magic tricks. Now, this lady really wishes that Vega could at least be half as virile as Zorro is. The previously mentioned Captain Roman is also interested in Polito. This, unsurprisingly, and culminates in a scene where Zorro thwarts an attempt by Roman to sexually assault Lolita. The plot of this turns when uh, Polito's family is unjustly jailed. It is argued that they are uh, supporting Zorro even though they kind of aren't. I mean, Lolita sort of is. This climaxes with Vega abandoning his disguise and just defeating all of the minions. Uh, At this point, he has won over the hearts and minds of the various other Caballeros in California and puts him into a position where he can force Governor Alvarado to abdicate. After this, uh, Lolita does not seem to be offended by Vega's subterfuge. She's delighted that he's Zorro and everyone lives happily ever after. The end. This is based on the 1919 novel The Curse of Capistrano, which was serialized in pulp magazines before it was published as its own thing by the uh, writer Johnson McCulley. It was streamlined very heavily from this novel by uh, star Douglas Fairbanks and uh, Elgin Miller. As I said before, this novel's pretty boilerplate. Just about everything that you would expect to be in a story like this is seeded throughout even after like over a century of people imitating this it's hard to imagine that this felt surprising even then you know, like i said it um it draws pretty heavily from baroness Orsky's scarlet pimpernel and the works of you know edgar rice Burroughs and various other like action adventure stuff that was just proliferating around young adult readers at the time i suppose we'd call them children back then One interesting change that the film makes is that in the novel, Zorro's secret identity is just, it's supposed to be treated as a mystery, which doesn't make any sense because the the narrative spends so much time on Vega and it would be pointless to do so if he totally wasn't Zorro. The movie knows this. We see Vega go into his little Zorro cave and change outfits within the first five minutes, which... Yeah, it it works a lot better than this long drawn out are we going to finally admit that he's Zoro yet or are we still pretending that he might not be? The film is the first thing put out by United Artists. This was a production company founded by Fairbanks, uh, his wife Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith. This was an attempt to uh, bypass the corporate suits who had a stranglehold over Hollywood at the time and give more creative control to the actors, writers, and directors. The success of this film and various follow-ups supported United Artists through its first uh, shaky couple of years. The most obvious impact of this film is that it changed the career course of Douglas Fairbanks, who was Zorro, and up until then, he was largely seen as a comedic actor. This rebranded him as a costumed adventure hero, uh, you know, the archetypical swashbuckler. Uh, because of this, Fairbanks is known for, you know, stuff like this. He's also D'Artagnan in The Three Musketeers and The Man in the Iron Mask. He starred in one of the earliest Robin Hood films. He's also The Thief of Baghdad, which is a heavy influence on Disney's Aladdin, and The Black Pirate. Errol Flynn followed Fairbanks' footsteps pretty explicitly, but as a whole, it's pretty difficult to calculate how much of an impact this made on action films in general. Even now, after decades of Technical innovation and changing trends. The highlight of the films being this third act scene where Zora just kind of parkours through uh, Pueblo architecture, just showing off uh, Fairbanks's physical fitness. It remains a highlight. It still has this kinetic impact that is just fun to watch in an old-timey uh, silent film way, not unlike you know Buster Keaton doing his own stunts in his various comedies. Airbanks would basically spend the rest of his career just trying to top that. In a lot of ways he did, you know, until several decades of chain-smoking in his 40s just forced him to give that up, ultimately. I feel that I should probably touch upon the directorial style of this film in some capacity. The director is Fred Niblo, but um, the work is fairly anonymous. It's very indicative of what filmmaking was like before Soviet montage and German expressionism started giving filmmaking a vocabulary that was different from uh, theatrical productions. The phrase that uh, is used in an academic sense is uh, proscenium framing. This is basically Fancy Pants way of saying that it's very stagey. Uh, The camera's set back. It captures things from the perspective of someone who was just sitting in a theater and watching it. A lot of scenes just felt like someone just parked a tripod in front of the actors and a stage and just locked away. This, to modern readers, makes a lot of the scenes seem kind of static or overly long. They only cut in between scenes. There are some rudimentary close-ups, but that's about it. This sort of approach isn't really used all that much today, unless if it's like a conscious attempt to uh, appear old-fashioned. The films of Wes Anderson kind of have this vibe, but that's about it. Like I said, this film was very successful by the standards of its time. It got a sequel in 1925 entitled Don Q, The Son of Zorro. Also, this basically led to Zorro just becoming an ongoing concern in general. Macaulay had intended the novel just to be a one-off, but because the film did so well, he uh, published a series of uh, novellas in 1922, 1931, and 1941. After that, he started writing monthly short stories starring Zorro from 1944 until... Basically his death. Macaulay tried to make a number of other pulp vigilantes take off, but none of them were nearly as successful as Zorro. He kind of had to keep going back to the well. Uh, Zorro also got a film serial in 1939 and several more throughout the 40s. The Mark of Zorro itself got a remake in 1940, which was an even bigger hit than the first one. And that basically cemented the character's ongoing legacy as this thing that's just going to keep popping up every couple of years in various iterations. The peak of the character's popularity was probably a Disney television show that ran from 1957 to, I believe, 1960. In 2015, the Mark of Zorro was added to the Library of Congress's uh, preservation efforts. Like I said, we're going to speculate as to why Zorro isn't nearly as popular as he used to be. I think one of the reasons might be because he's really chained to this esoteric historical period and the distant past. That being said, I mean, people still care about Sherlock Holmes, and not every single remake takes place, you know, in the present day. Sometimes he's around in late 19th century London, and people still like him just fine. So that dog won't hunt, at least not on its own. So uh, another theory that people generally throw around is that Zorro's basically been replaced by Batman. Batman. Now, it's very clear that Batman is just sort of a composite of various things that came before. Zorro, not the least among them. Bill Finger has cited Zorro as a pretty core component of the character of Batman that he shaped together alongside Bob Kane, particularly having the character uh, operate inside of a cave hideout. You know, there's various other things about it. Bruce Wayne is also a rich, seemingly foppish dude bro who is secretly Batman, and various other Zorro knockoffs, such as The Shadow and Black Bad also played into the character quite a bit. The most telling indication is that The Mark of Zorro tends to be the film that the Waynes are watching just before they get whacked. This was obviously a very conscious effort on the Batman people to name-check the character, you know, kind of putting a lampshade on it. I don't think it's a coincidence that Batman began rocketing in popularity around the same time that Zorro began declining. Apparently we only have room enough for one of them. Both characters sort of have this uh, social implication that uh, is attached to the masked vigilante proto-superheroes like Zorro and just flat-out superheroes like Batman. Both of them sort of have this anti authority authoritarian posturing but, like most superheroes, they're mainly here to maintain the status quo. What came up again and again in the Zorro media I consumed is sort of this bad apples theory. Zorro defends people from corrupt plutocrats, but ultimately he supports the caste system of uh, Alta California. This film and most of the other ones he shows up in, you know, the governor itself is corrupt, but he's never asking for systemic change. He wants a good millionaire to replace the bad millionaire. You know, a good, a good millionaire like him. And plenty of other people have speculated about this, sometimes using the medium of uh, mass vigilantes or superheroes to do so. Alan Moore's Watchmen comments on the fascist underpinnings of superheroes, using their strength and force of will to impose their uh, impressions of what justice means. Another aspect of why Zoro isn't super in anymore, other than, you know, somewhat dated concerns or being supplanted by Batman, is that uh, the copyright of the character is kind of murky right now. Now, in the United States, the 1919 source novel, uh, the 1920 film that I'm talking about, and the 1922 literary sequel are all in the public domain. However, most of the other Zorro copyrights are held by uh, Macaulay descendants who have long since formed a production company called Zorro Productions. They aggressively sue anybody who puts out Zorro product without their say-so, and they keep a lot of Zorro stuff in the vault. You might notice that as of this recording, the Disney Zorro series that I mentioned is not on Disney+, and that's probably because the Zorro people are just holding out for more money. This is probably also just kneecap any other productions that one could have with the character. Anyone can make a Sherlock Holmes movie, but uh, Zorro is currently chained up. That being said, there have been a couple of modern takes on the character. I think the last one that moved the needle in any capacity was way back in 1998, The Mask of Zorro starring Antonio Banderas and uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, which is actually pretty good. You should check it out. Uh, however, I did, in the research of this episode, come across this piece about how there is a CBS series possibly in production with a gender flip Zorro taking place in the modern day. I'm not sure if that would work. I'd imagine it's going to be a procedural somewhere along the lines of, say, elementary or one of the various NCIS type of programs. So, you know, if it ever happens, it's probably something my mom might watch, but I would never check out. That about covers everything I wanted to talk about with this character. When I uh, don't have someone to bounce ideas off of, these episodes tend to be a little shorter. I think, overall, I don't want to make it render a firm verdict on this film's impact or why uh, it hasn't really extended to the character just being ongoing in the ways of certain of his peers. But hopefully I've given you something to think about. So thanks for listening. I will see you next time.